Hi, everybody. This is Phil Town. This is Danielle Town. We're here for the Invested Podcast, and we're real excited to talk to you guys because we are drilling down into the depths of great investing as Ooh. taught by Warren Buffett. And I like that. Charlie Munger. And we're talking about mindfulness, about being invested in your life, invested in your money, invested in your finance, invested in your financial future, not leaving it to somebody else to handle it for you. Or if you are, then doing it mindfully, aware of what you're doing. And I was real excited last time we talked about noticing. I mean, you were you, were, you really made some cool points in the last podcast about just paying attention. And I thought that was really, really cool. Like, yeah, did you try it? I did. I tried it. I got I got 24 seconds into it and couldn't stand it anymore. <laughs> well, I think that's the point is that after a while, after 24 seconds, you say to yourself, I can't even handle myself. It's this amazing. I, there, was, there were so many things I was doing that I didn't understand what I was doing. And it, it started to remind me of this, uh, this old uh, philosophy created by this guy in Russia named Gurdjieff that took off pretty good in the late 60s, early 70s when everybody was doing that, all that stuff. And his idea was you constantly think about what you're thinking about. And for mm -hmm. all you Gurdjieff fans, I probably just said that wrong, but it's a basic idea. And the problem is you can split your mind. I mean, you can actually get into a problem in your head. And that's what it started to feel like when I'm noticing my noticing my noticing, feeling like I'm sliding down like a rabbit hole like we're yeah, talking about Yeah, it's too before. much. It's too much. No, it's just... It's just on the surface level, being aware of what you're doing and your decisions. Well, there's a lot, and, you know, sorry, go ahead. No, you're right. Like it can become this rabbit hole of craziness, but I think you can keep it surface level and maybe just over the course of a day, come back to it a few times. It doesn't have to be constant. Just come back to it a few times, pick up the thread, remember what you were doing, remember that you were noticing. And what's interesting about doing it like that too is you can look back and go, oh my gosh, for the last hour, I didn't notice anything I did. Like, let me think back to what I just did for the last <laughs> hour. <laughs> and it's a bit extraordinary to realize what you do unconsciously. And that's the point of it. It's just, it's just a thought exercise. I started to think about some other thought exercises that we've done. You remember that, um, that trip in the pickup truck that we took out uh, across the West and you and your sister, and I was trying to get her ready to go to the Hoover Dam, which is very high. And she was afraid of heights after she took that fall off the climbing wall. Yeah, <laughs> which, which we are not going to explain. We may not talk about it. Didn't, it it did not involve parental wall. neglect. Yeah, yeah. This was <laughs> but it's set up. OK, so she got a little afraid. And, and I wanted to try um, Tony Robbins uh, neuro linguistic programming, I think they call it. But Tony Robbins has these tapes well, they, they're CDs now. They're probably not even CDs anymore, but they were tapes back then. Do you remember yeah. those? Remember I, you think, stick I think it was like 20 hours of Tony Robbins and cassette tapes. It was. And I remember, I remember this like big plastic book of tapes. Do you remember how big those books used to be? Because yeah. they had a, a tape for every, you know, every hour. Oh my gosh, yeah. Tony Robbins forever. Yeah, but it kind of worked. Ever and ever and ever. It kind of worked. It was like... Um, you know, the idea is that you've got your you got your mind stuck in a groove and you can't get out of it when you're having unreasoning fear, you know, like about heights or about cats or about whatever. And Tony's idea was that you you got to pop that mind out of that groove and you do it by just doing something shocking. So I think the first thing I do with your sister is I, I got her. You get her thinking about 
that fear. Like, you know, be like you're up on a wall and you're looking down and it's and you start and she starts to feel the fear. And then I yeah. yelled at her, like scared her. <laughs> and, and do you remember that? No. <laughs> oh, man. But I can imagine it. Scared her. And she's looking at me like, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? Why are you yelling at me? And then I told her what I was doing. So I said, now just get back into that same space again. And uh, like that same feeling of fear and it was harder for her the second time because that shocking noise popped the needle out of that groove in the record and it put her thoughts into something else and the second time I threw a little water in her face <laughs> okay so this may not be parenting 101 I don't, this may not be Dr. Spock but it worked but it, I can I, I don't remember it but I absolutely believe that that's what you did and it worked it, and she was able to stand on the in, at the dam and look down and she wasn't afraid it was amazing I was Tony Robbins does some great stuff if you haven't done your Tony Robbins do his course his basic course is awesome I have not done Tony Robbins well I guess I did it in the car but clearly I don't remember I vaguely remember that there are like goals that you are supposed to set for your life but I don't know how you were supposed to achieve those goals. I, I, I feel like I feel like I'm missing a key part of this process. Yeah, there's there's a thing with Tony about uh, about the pain of failure and the the joy of success. The pain of failure is so much higher than you know. You get so much more impact from painful things than you do from joyful things. That is so true, you know. And actually, I've been reading a bunch about that very phenomenon and how it works in investing. Because people are so much more afraid of losing money in the stock market than, than, of the, than they think about the good feelings of making money in the stock market. Yep. And I, I, I tell you that this idea of fear of loss and fear of making a mistake is one of the things that forms the basis of uh, uh, the modern idea that you don't invest in any one thing. You don't try to really understand what's going on because, of course, as we've talked a lot about, modern portfolio theory says that you can't that the, that the price of everything in the market is what their things are worth. So there's no point in trying to figure out what's on sale. Um, and of course, Buffett thinks that's utter nonsense. But that aside, the the idea that you're going to invest in a handful of things that you fully understand is very scary to a lot of people who don't feel like they're really competent to make that decision. And therefore, doing a very focused portfolio on a small number of great companies, as we would recommend, is really scary. And so the exactly. answer, yeah, so the answer that the markets come up with is this go the other way of this massive diversification uh, to buy index funds or broadly uh, diversified mar money m market funds um, and avoid the whole issue of, uh, of being afraid. But then. <laughs> Isn't that extraordinary? Can we just take a moment? Yeah. Isn't that extraordinary that our market system and the typical way that almost all of us invest is because of our emotions? That Isn't is that really extraordinary? True. That's because of our, and it's not that we're crazy or anything. It's our own human, probably evolutionary, evolutionarily developed reactions to not getting killed is that we are much more adverse to fear or much more adverse to scary things than we are to the joy, than we're happy to have the joy of good things. And now in our protected world where we are probably not gonna be killed by a tiger in the bush, we don't need that fear as much, but we've transferred it to our man-made systems of money markets. And 
I mean, it makes complete sense that we all behave like this. Like, I don't think any of us should feel badly about it. It makes complete sense. You were making such a huge point. Uh, I'm telling you, man, the, the idea that we transfer this fear of being mauled by a tiger into a fear of losing money means that it's, it's entirely possible that we would have the same fear level of being mauled by a tiger if there was nothing more risky in our lives than, let's say, Monopoly. You know, literally <laughs> just a game. But since there's no place else for this fear to be expressed, and there may, there may be some human need to have this range of emotion or something, you know? Because you can see people get into Monopoly games really, really intensely, you know? Or into <laughs> video games really intensely. And, yeah. Like, and, come on. It's 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 a little more intense when you're working with your real money. Okay, fair enough. I may be I may be uh pushing the well, point, but let me just say that that you remember 150 200 years ago, you know, people picked up their families and their dog, loaded up a wagon and tried to make it across the plains into Oregon on this perilous journey. I mean, a really scary journey. You know, or years before that, people got in the open sea in a in a in a canoe and made it from one island to another island. They didn't even know for sure was there. I mean, it's like the level of risks that human beings used to be willing to take or to be comfortable with has now been kind of transferred into money. And, yeah. And it isn't yeah. the same level of risk at all, particularly, Danielle, if you don't have any money. <laughs> if you don't have any money. People, people get all wired up about losing $1,000 if all they've got is $2,000. It's like, hey, I'm sorry, you should be the most risk-taking person out there. You've got $1,000. What are you going to do, retire on $1,000? You know? No, but they, I don't want to lose my $1,000. Come on. Look, I'm going to reference back to a great book that you just have to read. I know I've talked about this before somewhere in the last year, but just fabulous book by Monash Pabrai, P-A-B-R-A-I, called Dondo Investor, The Dondo Investor. Um, Monash runs about a billion dollar hedge fund. And his point about this, this Dondo Investor comes from studying the Patel family, which got essentially thrown out of Uganda and lost everything. And one member of the Patel family came to America, started with a little bit of dollars that he collected together and bought a rundown motel that they could create cash flow out of by just having mom and dad and the kids all work and do all the jobs of the motel. And, you know, you may have never been in one of these places, but Melissa and I go to them pretty regularly on our Harley. You know, we just roll up. We want to go to a motel where you can, you know, where you can, the bike won't get stolen. So there's only really two choices. You either go to like Four Seasons where they just won't get stolen, or you go to a totally rundown motel and you put the bike in the in the room with you. Which nice, is, <laughs> nice. It has to be fairly run down for that to qualify. And yeah. so, some of those motels are still run by Patel family members who are just starting out with this cash flow formula of putting it all in to a single investment, small amount of money. And if they win, then they leverage up and go to the next one. And if they lose, they go back to work for somebody else for two or three years, save up the money and do it again. And so the idea that Monash is putting forward is that you're looking for an investment where there is very little downside and a huge upside. And for Here's people, the difference between the Patel family starting a hotel and me. Are you ready? Yeah, what? 
They know how to run a hotel. I don't know how to invest. That is really huge. I'm telling you right now, that's a gigantic truth. So and I take your point that for them, it's like, oh, you go start a hotel. They've got all of this institutional knowledge in their family. If yeah, it doesn't work out because they picked the wrong location, they know they can do it again the second time. 1000% right. And it, what do you, what's the right word for that? You'd call it institutional knowledge. It's like, it's like they're, the, the larger Patel family has been around, you know, long, long time and has had literally hundreds of years of success in these businesses. And so when I think the point you're making is when that guy showed up in America in the 1960s, um, with his family and $10,000 to his name, um, it, it, he, he had something much more valuable than the money. And that is this yeah. thing you're calling institutional knowledge. I don't like that word because it's not really reflective of a family. But it's the right idea that there's this, there's this knowledge. It's almost genetic. It's not really, but it's like, it's like meme, not genes, but memes that are my uh, memories that are passed through the family one after another that create the culture of that family. And one of the things I'm trying to do with this podcast, quite frankly, is to bring people into this greater family that, you know, Warren Buffett is like Uncle Warren and I'm Uncle Phil. And <laughs> we're trying to, to bring in people into this greater family we call the Rule One family. And and give them this institutional knowledge that's been yeah. passed along for, for, for decades now on how to properly invest. And you're right. It's exactly what the Patel family does. And that's why it's not about the money. It's never about the money. It's about you know how to do a hotel. You know how to do yeah, it. Yeah. I mean, what you're talking about is making it familiar to you. It's, uh, it's, it's having the experience around you without even necessarily having done it yourself. Yeah. You pick up a lot by just being around other people who are doing whatever it is you're interested in. And I mean, that's literally why I'm doing this podcast, because I was never around you doing investing. So I have no idea how it works. And this is a huge step for my whole family, because before me, there was no one in my family that knew much about investing except my uncle, who... No, no one in my family, my mom, my dad, nobody told me, hey, watch your Uncle Al and go learn what he's doing. They never said it because they didn't know either. It was never part of the meme of the family. And so, man, I'll tell you, it's just. Uh, it, I don't know if meme is the right word. There are memes on the Internet. And do you know what those are? Well, I think meme comes from. I don't know what they're using the word on the Internet from, but it comes from this idea that. Um, that memories, I think is what it stands for, is memories can be passed down just like genetics. That's okay. originally where it kind of came from. So That's I think I'm using it right. That's interesting. Yeah, I'm sure the internet has turned it into its own thing. Yeah, because, um, you know, people definitely, I mean, think about how hard it is to get out of poverty. You know, when, when the road is well paved, you know, get, study hard in school, get a good education, Borrow money, go to college, get a good education, come out of college, go to work for a good company, let them teach you how to do this stuff, dress a certain kind of way that looks like you're serious, learn to speak that looks like you're serious. This, you know, being successful is not rocket science. It's a very well-paid path. But it's people not don't rocket get science, but everything you just said requires knowledge. It's cultural knowledge. It's cultural. 
It's knowledge. educational knowledge. Yes, yes, yes. It's social knowledge, how to behave in an interview, how to behave in a business social yes. setting. These are not things that come naturally to most of us. And yet, for some of us, it comes more naturally than others because we grew up around it or we're just somehow <laughs> we fall in really easily or you focus on how other people do it and you consciously learn it. Those are basically the three ways. I don't know if and, you can consciously learn it. I don't know if you really can. I'm, that's what I'm kind of questioning here is, you know, I mean, at what point, remember what we're talking about noticing what you're thinking. At what point do you notice that you're not consciously learning something from somebody that looks like they know what they're doing? At what point does your culture block you entirely from making that transition? And I would stipulate that in our family, we had a blue collar workers culture that said that people with money were somehow criminal. Oh, well, that's, that's a whole other that issue. That stuff will yeah. mess you up. That will mess you up. Absolutely. That, that will prevent you from looking at people with money as a role model because they're, they're already categorized as something wrong with them. Yep. And if, mm -hmm. if that culture is baked into your brain for the first 15 years of your life, that's pretty hard to have the thought that I should be, you know, I should be go over and watching how this guy's doing it. I should go watch how that Patel family guy's doing this because he's so smart and has figured it all out. That's never going to get in my head. What's really in my head is, oh, those guys must be some kind of criminal enterprise or they're taking advantage of the working man, you know? Right. Well, the point is you actually don't want the end goal that that kind of studying would get you, which yeah, is you don't want being somebody goal. like that. But of course, you're conflicted because you do. Because Right, exactly, which is why it's a messed up thing. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's equally messed up to want to be, in quotes, rich and act like a rich jerk who has, you know, some giant watch on his wrist and drives a flashy car and wants everyone to know how much money he has. I mean, I have no interest in people like that. And yet some people look up to people like that. So, you know, we all have our own stuff that's built into us in many areas, not just money, but particularly with money, I think it's something that we don't notice. That's a really important point. Yeah. We, we, I think we often uh, have those impressions and just assume that everyone has those impressions. Either way, either like money is the greatest thing that ever happened or money is the root of all evil. And we just figure everybody thinks that way. Yeah. And and we don't. We have different views on these things. And I think that there is a really important happy medium where money is. And that's where I'm going with with my study of this is money is really important. I don't ever want to pretend like it's not. It buys you things that you want. It buys you experiences. It buys you freedom. It buys you good access for your children to things that they want. It buys you lack of worry a lot of times. Money is incredibly important, but it's not everything. Of course it's not everything and it has no bearing on who you are as a person and what kind of like good things you're doing in your life. So those two things are both true and we can hold both of those things at the same time. Yeah, you go go watch a movie like Goodwill Hunting if you haven't already seen it. I know you've seen it, but you know, you're watching uh, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck coming out of uh, South Boston, uh, very blue collar worker uh, environment. And, you know, you've got this one guy that's got this chance to get out because he's just a genius. And his friends are like, you know, telling him at the end of this thing, Ben Affleck is telling him, if you stick around here, I'll kill you. You know, it's like I'm going to I'm going to be horribly disappointed because you've got this opportunity to escape this place. But the pull 
of what you know and what you're familiar with is pulling it at Matt Damon the entire movie, you know? Yeah, that's a great point. That's exactly what that movie's about. Yeah, yeah. Really, really well worth learning and or, or watching. And, and then I think, really, I just want to offer you guys, everybody out here listening to this, that there are these mindful ways of, of practicing that will help you break loose if you feel like you, you can use something. I mean, contemplative prayer is fabulous. Um, there, in every culture, there is something to do with silencing, quieting the mind, getting into a deeper space, getting into a, a place where you may not be so driven by everything on the surface, right? Everything on the, on the, uh, in the culture that you're in, everything on the surface of your mind. And, and that practice, that's another practice of meditation or contemplative prayer, um, I find is incredibly valuable to, to open up the possibilities, open them up a little bit. And um, yeah, it's interesting. It's like by, by focusing on yourself for just a short amount of time, it opens you up. Now this, it's, you know, it's a closing in that opens you. I've done a lot of, of, of probably horrible parenting things to you. But one of <laughs> one of the better what, things. What are you going to pull out now? Well, I think one of the better things I've ever done is, is introduce you to a good method of meditation when you're oh, five yes. years old. I think that was that was excellent. You've been doing it ever since. So is your sister. Yeah, um, we do transcendental meditation and we all still do it. Yeah. Um, I just did it this morning. I'm very proud of myself. Yep. And this isn't a pitch for transcendental meditation. This is a pitch for finding something that is that that, you know, spins your wheels. It's kind of in your wheelhouse that you feel comfortable with. Some people go out and do long distance running. Some people do long distance swimming and and feel like they're getting into that space, into that zone. Yeah, absolutely. You know, TM just happens to be one way that a lot of people do it. And and uh, and it has, has been working really well for us for a long time. I started I started doing it when I what 1972, so you know <laughs> goes back a ways. But it's a it's just a any kind of technique that you're comfortable with that you can do repetitively. I think we mentioned on the show uh, earlier that uh, we were introduced to the idea of thankfulness. This this technique of Maru by uh, Wahe Takeda. Um, of just being thankful every day, just a thousand times a day, being mindfully thankful is a yeah. That's great an technique. I've tried to do that by the way. That's really hard. That's hard. A thousand times is a lot of times. Yeah, even when you're even going this like, fast. Honestly, like ten times is a lot of times. Yeah, think about that guy. I mean, he's got everybody in every company that he's invested in is doing that. And he truly believes that is the basis. <laughs> or they're of telling him that they're doing it. Or they're telling him he's doing it. Well, <laughs> one of them, I know one of them's doing it because they have a choir that sings thankfulness songs all day. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> yeah, Stop really, it. Really. I mean, and th- that technique exists. I've seen that same technique done by evangelists who have people in a prayer room going full blast. I've seen it done in the TM organization where they've got people meditating full blast. There must be something to it. This idea there, of just going. There, sure there is. Where's my <laughs> choir? Come on, guys. We can what do am it. I doing with my time? We can put on your 24-7 CDs of somebody singing thankfulness for you. Yeah, isn't there an app for that? Where's my <laughs> choir app? We need that app. Honey, somebody's going to listen to this, and they're going to build this app, and boom. I hope they do. I am thankful for the future app that you're about to develop. I've been to- trying to be thankful for my problems, which <laughs> is more difficult than it sounds. 
and yet also easier than it sounds because they come up when you try to think of them, they come to the front of your mind extremely quickly, your problems, much more quickly than your, than your, your, your virtues. Is that a good word? <laughs> well, the mind is incredibly powerful and it's right at the heart of good investing. It is the essence of the kind of investing we're teaching you guys is to be able to buy a great company when it's on sale which means you're buying it when there's fearfulness around that company. There's a lot of fear around it or that wouldn't be on sale. And we want you to have the comfort of selling it when it's everybody's excited about buying it, you know, and it's going up, up, up. And once it it's gets very to be, hard, it's, it's very, very hard. hard I you. think that, that that is the central challenge of learning this. I mean, I'm so glad, you know, we haven't even talked about valuation yet, but we will. But let's assume we can all learn valuation. Let's assume we can all learn how to evaluate a moat and management, and we can all understand some number of companies that are out there being publicly traded. Okay, assumed away. Yeah. The hard part is the emotions of it. Yeah. When do you buy? When do you sell? When has the story changed enough for you to get out or to get in? Yeah, in other words, when... When do you learn what the Patel family taught their children for 200 years? When, right, about it's the judgment. Business? It's how do you develop the judgment right. to know when you're right and when you might be not quite so right and you should back off. Yeah, and the, and the Patel thing is a great, that's why I want you to read the book. It, it's fabulous. And the reason it's such a good example is because we're not talking about, you know, uh, a few companies here that these guys are invested in with their very meager amount of money as they're coming into this new country. We're talking about putting it all in on one company. So it's it's taking it to the extreme, right? And where you cannot, theoretically, according to most people, you cannot afford to lose, right? And, and it looks like a dive off a high, 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 maybe too high cliff for most people who would never do that. They would never take the small amount of money they managed to save up from hard work and then put it all into one thing. So the first thing is the Patel family must know the business. And even so, some of those little motels fail. Even so. Which is yeah. the whole point of Monesh's view that, you know, you can do this easier with almost no money than you can with millions of dollars. It's much scarier for a Patel family member who's already a multimillionaire to commit it all to one hotel. I mean, I take the point... In general, I'll take that point. Here's the thing. They control those hotels that they're starting. Just like any other entrepreneur, it controls the company that they're starting. So it's a different level of control compared to investing in a publicly traded company that is controlled by people you've never met and will never meet and are getting basically third-hand information from. So... I take your point. I'm not sure it 100% applies to investing in a stock market company. Like, I would want to have a little more diversification. And I know that that's a, an evil word in rule one. But, well, but putting, all, putting all my eggs in one publicly traded basket would make me very nervous. Yes. And, it and actually, should. you don't even say to do that. No, I don't. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm, let's let's <laughs> clarify here. The Patel family goes to this extreme 
Um, and part of the reason is because they do have hands-on control. And part of the reason is because it's their cash flow they can live on by you know cooking dinner in the office and saving the money. Um, and part of it is because their family has had this meme of knowing how to build a hotel from a scratch uh, environment for 200 years or more. So there's a lot there that says, okay, you can really focus even more and just come down to one and do it. Um, and you're, you're very likely to succeed on this one effort. So go all in. Yeah. <clears throat> what, we're ask, what we're asking you to do is not over diversify. There's no point to buying 200 things or 100 things or 50 things, none of which you understand, unless you're completely comfortable with a long-term rate of return of about 5%. The long-term rate of return in the stock market for the last 110 years is about 4.6% compounded on the Dow Jones Industrial Average, plus a couple points of dividends, so a little bit less than 7%. If that'll do it for you, if that will get you to retirement, and you don't worry about the you know 10 years down or 15 years down markets, then go along with exactly what Warren Buffett says about this, is that that's the... That's the easiest way to do it. I mean, if you're not going to learn to invest, then that's kind of what you must do. And but Buffett and Munger, we both call that massive over diversification required because you're ignorant. Mm -hmm. If you don't know how to build the one motel, you know, then what are you going to do? You, you better buy 500 of them because, you know, <laughs> you're going to be in trouble if you just go for one. But we're coming down to something that's more uh, in the middle between these two things. Some degree of diversification. Okay, like, so that makes more sense to me then. Yeah, so let's call it, let's call it uh, we're shooting for 10 companies. And in our lifetime, maybe 20, you know? Okay. And we, okay. See that, we see that over time as we get, as we buy businesses, we will keep them. And so we've got four or five that we just own and we've owned for 20 years. And then we have, or theoretically that could be the case, like Warren Buffett's own American Express and Coca-Cola for many, many years. And um, Washington Post for many years, which he just got rid of. Okay. Hmm. And so um, you expect to be in it a long time. And then, of course, you look for the new ones. And the, in other words, your portfolio sort of organically grows. And you're looking for, you know, maybe 5 to 10% of the portfolio in any given company. And as you get more and more comfortable with that company over time, then you're more and more like the Patel family. You're starting to feel confident. And so if that company goes on sale, you can buy more of it as time goes along. But we would recommend you never be more than, you know, maybe 20% in one company. And, you know, ideally, you're roughly 5 to 10% in, in a group of companies. That, oh, okay. So that makes total sense to me. And I think that's very reasonable when you're dealing with companies that you have no control over. Yeah, and I think that you'll find that that keeps you pretty busy. If you've got 20 companies you're following and every one of them has a one-hour quarterly meeting, you're pretty busy right there. That's a half a week of listening to quarterly reports, and, and you're doing that every quarter. Um, Yikes. Yeah, that's going to keep you really, really busy, which is why maybe 10 is a little more ideal for the average investor. So 10 of them. Now, the second thing you brought up, I think, is that the CEO is pretty important. If you're running it, you're running it. But we're investing in somebody else who's running it, some man or woman that that is going to manage this business for us, which is why we look at management as one of the critical keys to making a great investment. We look at, you know, do we understand the business? Does it have a big moat? Do we have management team with talent and integrity? And if, if the management team doesn't have talent and doesn't have integrity, that's like, you know, the Smith family starting a motel. You know, are not 
holy smokes, I'm going to get in trouble with the Smiths. Y'all have <laughs> great integrity. Not talking about that. Just may not be that talented in the motel business just because you haven't had the experience. So Insert generic name here. Yes, insert generic name here of someone with no experience in the motel business, but plenty of integrity. And so um, you're going to go in there and you're going to get lessons the hard way. And what we love about investing in public companies is that if we can get good managers, people that have a great track record, then that's like getting the Patel family on steroids, right? Then that's the, that's the guy who used to run the millions of dollars of hotels and now is starting over with one little hotel. He's going to crush it. He's going to knock it out of the park. So that's ideal. Like there's a company out there I'm looking at right now called um, called Air Lease that is run by a guy named Steve Hazy, who is the godfather of the entire air leasing industry. So if I'm going to put money in an in a in an aircraft leasing company, um, I can put one in run by you know a very competent manager at GE maybe, or I can do it with a a good competent management team from uh, you know. I don't know, one of the other companies that's in the industry, there's a bunch of them. Or I can go to the guy that built the industry, who's already proven how talented he is, what a great manager he is, how committed he is to it. That would make sense to me, right? To, to go with the very best guy. And I'm not advising you to go with this. Yeah, uh, I mean, I don't know if he's saying. the best guy, but I you would can, say yes, go in general, go with the best guy. In general, go with the best guy who's already done the motel business and now he's gonna do it again. That's awesome, right? So if we're looking at Chipotle Grill, which we've talked about before, you know, we're looking at the people who run that business and they're they're fabulous. They've built they've done it right over and over again. And now they're starting two new Chipotle enterprises, one for Chinese food done just like Chipotle Mexican Grill. Right? You go down the line, you get your Chinese bowl. And the other really? one is yeah, the other one is fast pizza, just quick pizza in a gas station. Yeah, and, that's the Pizzeria Locale one from Boulder. Yeah, and they're both very successful and very small. And, um, you know, right now Chipotle has a couple thousand restaurants and it's got like 13 of these of these uh, Chinese restaurants. So, you know, that the guys who are starting this new motel have already done big motels. They know how to do it. So, I, you know, I think that that's the kind of management team we want to invest with. And again, I'm not advising you to invest with Chipotle. I'm just saying it's an interesting example. Go do your homework before you buy anything on your own. You know how Charlie says in his four principles, which we talk about all the time, um, that management is a very important principle, but not necessarily required. He says that, right? He says that, yeah, but that's, he's hedging a little. Okay, well, here's, here's what's interesting though, is that he said that, and that was in early 2000 sometime that yeah. we have that recording. Yeah. And I just watched the uh, Berkshire Hathaway shareholder meeting because they live streamed it on the internet this year. Yeah. And I'm not a shareholder, so I, you know, and by the way, have never been interested in the lease. So lucky for me that this year they decided to live stream it. So I watched some of it. And there was a question about that because they've done a couple now of basically what sounds like talent acquisitions, meaning that they bought a company in order to get the CEO and a couple other people who work at that company into the Berkshire Hathaway fold. And, um, and they basically totally admitted it. They were like, yeah, we wanted that guy. And so we bought the company and he's doing a great job. And Charlie totally was like, yeah, our system has kind of changed. So oh, there you go. Wow. Yeah. So now it's really So now it's really solid important. Three and I think they basically <laughs> said there's uh, that's can be a differentiating factor between companies yeah. that they hadn't used as much before. Yeah. By and the if, way, I, go ahead. Uh, on the on the uh, aircraft leasing industry, they also in this meeting said 
we've looked That's at it. That's what it was. We, yeah, we're scared of it. It doesn't. We don't like it. Scary oh no, industry. I'm thinking of it's. It was called like Precision. Oh, Auto Precision Casparts. Yeah, Precision Casparts is doing. Uh, they they build parts for air, airliners to replace stuff with. So they are in that industry for sure. Well, they were singing the praises of the CEO. Yeah, because they paid up for that company pretty good. I mean, they that oh, was really? not way on sale. You know. Mm. Well, so, they, were, they sounded very happy with everything that was yeah, happening. It's so them. cool. But, they, it, but the interesting part also for, I think, particularly for us as looking at public companies to invest in is that they took that company private and brought it into Berkshire Hathaway. Yep. And the point that they made about that was that now this CEO, which they spent so much money to get him um, and probably his his management team, now spends his time doing things far more important for the company than providing public disclosures. And they said it probably gave him back about a quarter of his time. Such a huge thing. It's huge. And I think that as people who are thinking about investing in publicly trading companies, we need to be aware of that. We need to be aware of how much time it takes to be on the public markets and and what these companies are dividing their time between. And just, you know, it's obviously like we don't have the option to invest in public in private companies, but I think notice, there you go again, noticing <laughs> that fact uh, is important just to be aware of it. Well, let me say that we do actually have the ability to invest in private companies. Um, that Well, when I say we, I mean me and all the other little guys out here. Who do not? You are you are rapidly getting the ability, rapidly, because the SEC is starting to get out of its own way when it comes to funding private businesses. Um, up up to this point, uh, there are some severe restrictions from the 1930s on how many people can pool their money. But now this group funding is cranking away on the internet, and people are starting to pool money. Uh, in, in larger and larger numbers of people who do not fit the criteria that the SEC set up in the 1930s of being a rich guy to invest in this stuff. And they are changing the rules piece by yeah, piece. So that the, is technically true. I would warn people to be wary. You should be wary. And, but I think that here's the, here's the key point I want to make. And then we kind of got to wrap up. And we'll come to valuation in the next podcast, I promise. <laughs> We're going to wrap up valuation. But here's the point is that the style of investing that we do is completely independent of the business being public or private or you know a, a franchise or a part of a business or whatever. This, the, the box that we're in as a ruler, the box that Warren Buffett built for us and Charlie Munger built for us is very, very clear, uh, clearly about just as much about a private business as it is about a public one. There, Absolutely. There's no difference there. You're going Absolutely. to learn how to value them. They, in fact, they're valued the same. Buffett and Munger basically value a public business at a private business price. And and that means that if you can find private businesses at that price, buy them, right? Where you get a great margin of safety, you get a great payback time, you get a great cap rate, you get a great zombie value, which we'll talk about next time. We'll go or you've made the point ideas. a number of times that it's similar to valuing real estate. Exactly. And yeah, it, I mean, I, I, it's a very good point that you don't have to invest in public companies, but we are mostly going to. <laughs> we're, we're going to because it helps reduce the fear, right? We got the liquidity aspect of a public company. Which and, is incredibly important. Which is very, very important. And that's why public companies sell for so much more than private companies do. 
is that all the big guys want that liquidity too because they're not going to stick around very long. And as a small investor, um, we want the liquidity just because we're still uncertain. We're still learning. We're still going through that learning process. So, you know, all good about public companies, but the things you're going to learn in this podcast will help you buy a lemonade stand, a private lemonade stand of your own, yeah. the, the laundromat, the, the, the gas station on the corner, um, a, a franchise with Subway, whatever it is, you're going to learn the critical numbers you should be looking at. In fact, if you're thinking of starting your own business, how much sense would it make to put the same criteria to work building your own business? Absolutely. Yep, yeah, totally. that's a great point. So I think we'll, we'll, let's come back to to, uh, to cash flow immediately, or sorry, to uh, ca- uh, valuation immediately on our next podcast, and then and uh, let's wrap this one up right now. And uh, that's it. Yes, for me. I will. I will force you to talk directly about valuation. <laughs> right, but you know what? Sometimes we just have interesting things to talk about. So. I think it's all right. We talked about portfolios today. Yep. Go ahead and find yourself a way of digging deeper in your brain. Get control of the fear. Remember, you're going to be buying on fear. You're selling on greed. And that is definitely an emotional control that uh, very few investors have. So, And something we'll be talking a lot more about. Yep, for sure. Okay. Until next time, time to go play. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like this episode, you can always get our show notes and more details and links to the resources we discussed at investedpodcast.com. Also, as long as you're online, head on over to investedpodcast.com slash workshop for details on an upcoming three-day live workshop that I'm hosting. All you gotta do to go is enter the special podcast code STOCKPILE, that's S-T-O-C-K-P-I-L-E, STOCKPILE, into the application form and you guys can attend for free. So everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really do hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.